As we prepare to read from God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us again turn to the Lord to ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. In the name of Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 40, 56, as we continue our sermon series through the songs of the nativity. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday, we meditated on the first few lines of Mary's song known as the Magnificent, where Mary sings of what God has done for her. In his grace, God had shown Mary favor, blessing her as the one to whom the promised Messiah would be born. So, in deep humility and gratitude for his blessing to her, Mary magnifies the Lord by singing to him this song of praise, in which she extols his character and attributes and tells of his goodness. And in joyful hope, she looks forward to the fulfillment of his promises. And as we now meditate on the rest of Mary's song this morning, verses 50 through 55, we should notice that Mary turns her attention from what God has done for her and is doing for her to what God will do for all those who are like her. And we shouldn't miss in these verses the language that Mary uses, not just the content of her song, but the tense in which she sings it. Mary gives thanks to God for what he is going to do, but she speaks with a certainty as though God has already accomplished this work. Look at what she says. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. She speaks in what would be equivalent in the Hebrew to a prophetic, perfect tense voice. There is such 
confidence that God will deliver on his promises that Mary speaks of them as though they are as good as done. God will be faithful to his covenant. And Mary knows this in the depth of her soul. So again, as I said last week, despite how bleak things might appear, Mary is able to sing here over the unborn mercy of God and give thanks for it and praise and glorify God for it. And her song not only teaches us what this confidence looks like, but it also encourages us to have the very same sort of confidence in God and what he has promised. In order that we can not only have the joyful hope that Mary does, but in order that we too can magnify God in our lives for his mighty work of salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, we should have even more confidence since we not only stand on the other side of Bethlehem, but on the other side of Calvary. We have beheld God's glory in Jesus Christ. We have been given witness that through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension that God's promises are true and trustworthy. For in Jesus, God fulfills his promises. This is why the Apostle Paul is able to say to the church in Corinth that all promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And since God is faithful to bring his promises to completion, it's important to see and understand these promises that Mary has confidence in. And she's giving us a glimpse of who we can anticipate the Messiah to be and the kingdom that he will bring. And specifically, she speaks to God's mercy and to those who will be recipients of this mercy, as well as God's justice. For if God is a righteous and holy God, he does not leave issues of justice unresolved in his coming and in his judgment. So this is what we want to see in these verses this morning. We want to see both God's mercy and God's justice that come in the person of Jesus Christ and how these promises get fulfilled in him. So let's dive right in. Look at verse 50. Mary identifies those who are the recipients of God's mercy. His mercy, she sings, is from generation to generation to those who fear him. Who is it that receives mercy? Those who fear God. Now, fear of God may be something that is scoffed at today. God is not to be feared, but loved, many will say. And they'll point to 1 John 4.18, which states that perfect love casts out fear. Isn't this what Jesus Christ comes to do, to reveal the love of God? So isn't it a strange thought that the first Christmas carol sings not of love, but of fear? But we find this theme of fearing God throughout Scripture from Genesis right on through to Revelation. And we probably all know the proverb which teaches us that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of wisdom because before we can learn to love God, we must stand in reverent awe of him. We must recognize who he is and who we are. He is a holy God. 
He is set apart from all of his creation. He is perfect in righteousness and justice. He's also a powerful God, able to accomplish all that he wills. And we, we are sinful and weak and capable of pleasing God by our own righteousness and deserving of his displeasure and wrath. This is why throughout Scripture there is a connection between fear of God and obedience. Fear of God, which acknowledges God's power and just judgment over sin, leads to a reverent desire to obey God. The opposite is also true and is also found in Scripture. A lack of fear of God, which dismisses God, leads to greater rebellion against God. This is why in laying out the pervasiveness of sin in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul begins by saying, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The Apostle Paul concludes saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no lack of sin because there is no fear of God. Rather than seeing the ominous threat of God's judgment against us, which leads us to fear and obey him, we dismiss God and we seek our own ends. Rather than fearing God, we fear a lot of other things. We fear lacking what the flesh desires. We fear earthly pain. We fear missing out on the pleasures of this world. We fear not being seen as significant. We fear not being in control. So we chase our own desires, and in doing so, we set ourselves up as our own gods. Therefore, even as fear of God is considered a lesser bond than love of God, for those of us who have yet to be perfected, fear of God serves an important and indispensable purpose. It keeps us from constantly caving to our sinful desires by reminding us, setting before us who God is. This is why we are told to work out our faith in fear and trembling. It's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Fear of God reminds us that we are to approach the all-powerful and all-holy God with all humility. But in essence, fear is a work of grace because it drives us to look to the love and mercy of God for salvation from the curse of sin, which in the end cast out our fear. Fear, in other words, eventually eliminates itself when we are fully found by God's love in Jesus Christ. And perhaps this is why later in Proverbs, in chapter 28, we read, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There is blessing for those who fear the Lord. As long as there is fear, we will not only desire to obey God, but seek God's mercy and discover it in Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand here. It isn't that those who fear God and are humble before him somehow merit God's mercy. God is never in our debt. He doesn't owe us anything. 
Humility is not a work that earns us salvation, nor is fearing God, but rather it is those who recognize their miserable condition, who acknowledge and confess that they are entirely incapable of being acceptable to God by their own merit, who fear God's just judgment, and who in humility look to God for mercy and who find that mercy has been freely offered in Jesus Christ. And so it's only those who come broken and needy to God, bringing nothing but their sin, who come in a state in which they can receive what God freely gives by his grace. We can try to make ourselves righteous, but salvation belongs to the Lord. This is what Mary sings of when she sings that God has shown strength with his arm. Verse 51, God is mighty to save he is mighty to redeem us from the depth of our sin in fact we are doomed otherwise john calvin notes let us be clear our soul's eternal salvation depends on god's exercise of his marvelous power at christmas we celebrate that the redemption god offers us in jesus christ goes as far as the curse is found It means that God reaches down to us in our miserable condition by taking on the fullness of our human nature. In order that he might live a perfectly righteous life for us, take the full penalty of our sins on himself by suffering and dying a sinner's death that we deserve in overcoming sin and death and the resurrection to new life because we can't. And God demonstrates to us in Jesus Christ that his salvific plan will not be defeated. Satan and hell can throw everything they have at God. They can kill God himself in Jesus Christ, but he will still prove to be victorious. Nothing will deny God what he has willed for our salvation or overpower the strength of his arm. He is mighty. But it's not merely God's might to save that Mary's song has in view. His mighty arm, which deals with our sinful condition and provides mercy, which saves to the uttermost, also works justice, bringing judgment against those who live in defiance to God. The blessedness of those who fear the Lord is contrasted in Proverbs with the cursedness of those who harden their hearts against God. For them, there is no hope. And we find this reality of coming judgment in the Messiah. As much as we look to Jesus Christ as the revelation of God's love to us, Scripture tells us something else about God. John quoted earlier, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We know that passage. Do we know the rest, though? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
So Mary sings that God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The humble receive mercy, but the proud receive judgment. And if the humble are, are they who recognize their desperate need for God, who fear God and seek to obey him, then the proud are those who believe themselves to be self-sufficient, who trust in their own strength. It's those who feel they have no need for God and do not submit themselves to his rule or his will. It's those who in the arrogance of their hearts create plans and seek to determine their own course apart from God. This is the attitude that God warned against through Moses in Deuteronomy 8, reminding the Israelites of what he has done for them in rescuing them from Egypt and caring for them in the wilderness. Moses says, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good homes and live in them, and when your herks, herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And scripture affirms that no human attitude falls more severely under God's judgment than haughtiness and pride, which causes humanity to forget God. But not only does pride cause us to forget God, it also sets us up over and against God, refusing to acknowledge his sovereignty. As John Calvin stated, men cannot help getting on their high horse, as the saying goes, so as to show off and add luster to themselves. The result is that God's power is always hidden from view. However little we attribute to ourselves, that much which is rightfully his, we take from God. We are cursed with the desire to impress and to appear as persons of some importance. We should realize that when we do this, we are defrauding God of his glory, which is his, and which he reserves to himself. Until we have been finally beaten down, the supremacy of God's arm and the power by which he rules will be hidden from us. But God will not tolerate our pride indefinitely. His mighty arm will have victory over those who rob him of his glory. This is why Peter reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he encourages us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. For those who refuse to humble themselves, God will ultimately treat them in the same manner as he treated those who in their pride built the Tower of Babel. He will frustrate their plans. He will bring all of their work to nothing. He will reduce their aspirations to rubble. They will be scattered. And the proud themselves who have acted as though there is no God will be dealt with by God. And Mary's song tells us that he will bring them low. And his judgment will be swift and severe when it comes. So Mary continues her song, verses 52 and 53. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. 
Again, the humble will receive mercy. They will be lifted up in the sight of the Lord. Those who bow themselves low before Jesus Christ will be made rulers with him when his kingdom comes in its fullness. And those who hunger after God and his righteousness will receive what they seek. They will be satisfied as Jesus promises in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Not only will they be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but they will receive the Holy Spirit who empowers them to live righteous and obedient lives. And at the last, they will be perfected in righteousness when Christ comes again. But there is another fate awaiting the proud. Specifically, rulers and the rich are mentioned here as targets of God's judgment. And this makes a good deal of sense. Those who are in positions of power are prone in their fallen nature to begin to believe in the strength of their own power. They are prone to begin to believe that they are the ones making things happen, if you will. So they will make their plans, failing to realize that any power they have comes from God Almighty and that he retains control of all things. We see this in Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings, and he comes to establish his rule. Paul tells us in Colossians that in Christ, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Ultimately, all those who sit in seats of power will be judged according to the measure of Christ. And if they have used their earthly power granted to them by God for evil, they will find themselves cast down and condemned by God. Likewise, the rich and their fallen nature are prone to look to money to find their security, making them a potential object of condemnation. Rather than understanding that all resources have come from God and ultimately belong to God, the rich are tempted to see the source of their wealth as themselves. This is what Deuteronomy 8 expresses, right? That my wealth came from my power and might. We find that this, added, this is an attitude that will ultimately leave one bankrupt before God. Further, just as a ruler might use power to oppress the weak, the rich might take advantage of the poor to make more money for themselves. The exploitation of the poor is an Old Testament theme found in the prophets. So it's not merely a pride which dismisses God's authority and steals God's glory. It's also a pride that leads to the violation of the commandment to love one's neighbor. And God will not leave these injustices unresolved. The ju judgment of which the prophets spoke for social injustice is seen here as meeting its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to bring vindication for those victims of injustice. We want to be very careful with how we interpret this passage at this point, though. We live in a culture in which everyone now sees themselves as a victim. And there are some who want to take this passage and limit it to a social, political, or economic dimension. History reveals how quickly this passage can become a rallying cry of the so-called progressive church, with many claiming that Mary here gives voice to the marginalized. That what this passage is all about is Jesus coming to overthrow power structures of the world in favor of the disenfranchised and powerless. And those looking for some sort of liberation theology or a social gospel in the Bible can find it here as they desire. 
as they claim that this passage unequivocally condemns power structures and wealth and announces blessing on all who are oppressed. This passage then gets used as a proof text for revolution against the social, political, and economic order of the day. And there is no denying that Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ, God turns the world on its head. As we said last Sunday, the song reveals that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak in the world to shame the strong. He casts down the mighty and exalts the weak. But this song is not primarily about the political, social, and economic revolution that the Messiah brings. Remember, Jesus doesn't come to overthrow the Roman government. He comes to reorient the entire cosmos according to the values of God's kingdom. And the song is pointing to who the Messiah is to be, the pattern that we will find in his life. The demonstration of God's might comes not from a military general outfitted for war, but in a baby born to a peasant girl and placed in a manger. Jesus shows us that the greatest in God's kingdom don't rule from thrones, but are the ones willing to get down on their knees with a towel and basin and wash feet. Jesus reveals in so many ways how the world has everything all wrong. But Jesus comes not as a political or social activist, but as a servant, demonstrating the power of God in meekness and love. And there are certainly political implications that come with the birth of Jesus Christ. He, after all, comes as the king of a kingdom. That is inherently, that inherently has political overtones. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It transcends this world. Even so, the citizens of his kingdom are without doubt a call to embody its reality here on earth. And as they are shaped by the ethic of this kingdom, there are social and economic implications that inevitably take root in their lives and help to shape the culture of the community around them. That isn't the focus of the song, though. And this song is in no way condemning all worldly power structures, nor is it condemning wealth. In the same manner, it also isn't saying that all of the powerless and poor are inherently blessed by God. Jesus makes very clear in his Sermon on the Mount that it is the poor in spirit who are blessed by God. There are those who are materially wealthy, who are God-fearing individuals who stand humbly before God, just as there are those who are materially poor, who despise God, and who are proud in their hearts. The problem is not power or wealth. The problem, dearly beloved, is pride. And so the song isn't meant to bring about revolution. It is meant to bring about praise. It's meant to stir up praise within us for the God who has shown the richness of his mercy to poor sinners in the sending of Jesus Christ. Who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor that we might become rich in him. Mary encourages us to magnify him for his mercy in Jesus Christ. And it's also meant to stir up praise within us for the God who will bring justice and judgment. 
The mention of God's judgment isn't meant to create in us simply a holy fear. It's also meant to be a cause of praise. For his judgment will come. Not only in order to set all things right and extinguish wickedness, but because God will not be robbed of the praise which is due to him. And we should praise him for that. We should give to him the praise he is due and magnify him that he will uphold his justice. So as we see the darkness in the world around us, the hope that we have in these promises is part of the light that Christmas brings. Help has come. Help has come in this baby born in Bethlehem. In him, sin and death have been conquered. Evil has been defeated and will at the last be extinguished. It will not last forever. It will not reign eternal. God will exalt the humble and cast down all those who oppose him. He will bring an end to wicked schemes and the oppression of his people. And God will receive the glory he is due. It will not be robbed of him forever. So let us praise God from whom all blessings flow as we await the day when all of his promises are fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you all thanks and praise. We magnify you for the greatness of your mercy and for the goodness of your justice. Lord, help us in this season to meditate on these things in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that as we read Mary's words and sing them with her, Lord, that it would well up within us praise for you. For you are mighty. You are mighty, Lord. Help us to put our trust in you all the days of our life. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father.